3. Fice for life. And who, instead of being elected by the organization are selected in camera by the board itself. When vacancies occur, the balls given by this society are known as the Monday Germans. And at these balls, which are held in the Lyric Theater, the city's debutantes are presented to society. As in all southern cities, much is made of debutantes in Baltimore. On the occasion of their first Monday German all their friends send them flowers, and they appear flower-laden at the ball, followed by their relatives who are freighted down with their darlings' superfluous bouquets. The modern steps are danced at these balls, but there are usually a few cotillion figures, albeit without favors, and perhaps the best part of it all is that the first ball of the season, and the Christmas ball, end at one o'clock, and that all the others end at midnight. That seems to me a humane arrangement. Although the opinion may only signify that I am growing old, another very characteristic phase of Baltimore life, and of Southern life at least in many cities is that, instead of dealing with the baker, and the grocer, and the fish market man around the corner, all Baltimore women go to the great market sheds and do their own selecting under what amounts to one great roof, the Lexington Market, to which my companion and I had the good fortune to be taken by a Baltimore lady, is comparable in its picturesqueness with Ells Hollas of Paris, or the fascinating market in Seattle, where the Japanese pile up their fresh vegetables with such charming show of taste. The great sheds cover three long blocks, and in the countless stall-like shops which they contain may be found everything for the table, including flowers to trim it and after-dinner sweets. I doubt that any northern housewife knows such a market or such a profusion of comestibles. In one stall may be purchased meat, in the next vegetables in the next fish, in the next bread and cake, in the next butter and buttermilk, in the next fruit, or game, or flowers, or at Christmas time tree trimmings, these stalls, with their contents, are duplicated over and over again, and if your fair guide be shopping for a dinner party, that which two men from out of town are to be initiated into the delights of the Baltimore cuisine, she may order up the costly and aristocratic malacoclemis, the diamond-backed terrapin, Sacred in Baltimore as is the sacred cob himself in Boston. The admirable encyclopedia of Masros. Fink and Wagnalls informs me that the diamondback saltwater terrapin is caught in salt marshes along the coast from New England to Texas. The finest being those of the Massachusetts and the northern coasts. The italics are mine, and upon the italicized passage I expect the mayor and town council of Baltimore, or even the government of the state of Maryland, to proceed against Masros. Finken Wagnalls, whose valuable volumes should forthwith be placed upon the state's index expurgatories. Of a marketman I obtained the following lore concerning the tortoise of the terrapin species. In the Baltimore markets four kinds of terrapin are sold not counting muskrat, which is sometimes disguised with sauce and sherry and served as a substitute. The cheapest and toughest terrapin is known as the slider. Slightly superior to the slider is the fat bath, measuring, usually, about 9 or 10 inches in length, and costing, at retail, 50 cents to a dollar, according to season and demand, somewhat better than the fat bath, but of about the same size and cost, is the golden stripe terrapin, but all these are the merest poor relations of the diamond bath. Some diamond bath terrapin are supplied for the Baltimore market from North Carolina, but these, my marketman assured me, are inferior to those of Chesapeake Bay, everything in or from. North Carolina seems to be inferior, according to the people of the other southern states. Although there is a closed season for terrapin, the value of the diamond back causes him to be relentlessly hunted during the open season, 
with the result that, like the delectable lobster, he is passing, as the foolish lobster fishermen of northern New England are killing the goose or, rather, the crustacean that lays the golden eggs, so are the terrapin hunters of the Chesapeake, two or three decades ago, lobster and terrapin alike were eaten in the regions of their abundance as cheap food, one Baltimore lady told me that her father's slaves, on an eastern shore plantation, used to eat terrapin, yet behold the cost of the precious diamond back today, in his smaller sizes, according to my marketman, he is worth about a dollar an inch, while when grown to fair proportions he costs as much as a railroad ticket from Baltimore to Chicago, and for my part I would about as soon eat the ticket as the terrapin, of a number of other odd items which help to give Baltimore distinct flavor I find the following in my notebooks, there are good street railways, also bus lines operated by the United Railways Company, under the terms of its charter this company was originally obliged to turn over to the city 13% of its gross income, to be expended upon the upkeep of parks, of late years the amount has been reduced to 9%, the parks are admirable, freight rates from the west to Baltimore are, I am informed, enough lower than freight rates to New York, Boston, or Philadelphia, to give Baltimore a decided advantage as a point of export, also she is admirably situated as to sources of coal supply, I do not care much for the last two items, myself, but put them in to please the Chamber of Commerce, it is the habit of my companion and myself, when visiting strange cities, to ask for interesting eating places of one sort or another, in Baltimore there seems to be no choice but to take meals in hotels unless one may wish to go to the Dutch tea room or the women's exchange for a shopper's lunch, and to see in the latter establishment great numbers of ladies sitting upon tall stools and eating at a lunch counter a somewhat curious spectacle, perhaps, but neither pleasing to the eye nor thrilling to the senses. The nearest thing to character which I found in a Baltimore eating place was at an establishment known as Kelly's Oyster House, a place in a dark quarter of the town. It had the all-night look about it, and the Negro waiters showed themselves not unacquainted with certain of the city's gilded youth. Kelly's is a sort of southern version of Jack's, if you know Jack's, but I don't think Jack's has any flight of stairs to fall down, such as Kelly's has. The dining rooms of the various hotels are considerably used, one judges, by the citizens of Baltimore. The Kernan Hotel, which we visited one night after the theater, looked like Broadway. Tables were crowded together and there was dancing between them and between mouthfuls. So, too, at the Belvedere, which is used considerably by Baltimore's gay and fashionable people. My companion and I stayed at the Belvedere and found it a good hotel, albeit one which has, I think, become a shade too well accustomed to being called good, perhaps because of a city ordinance, perhaps because the waiters want to go to bed. They have a trick, in the Belvedere dining room, during the cold weather of opening the windows and freezing out such dilatory supper guests as would fain sit up and talk. This is a system even more effective than the ancient one of mopping up the floors, piling chairs upon the tables, and turning out enough lights to make the room dull. A good post-midnight conversationalist and Baltimore is not without them can stand mops, buckets, and gin lights, but turn cold drafts upon his back and he gives up, sends for his coat, buttons it about his paunch and goes sadly home. It is fitting that last of all should be mentioned the man who views you with keen eye as you arrive in Baltimore, and who watches you depart. If you are in Baltimore he knows it, and when you go away he knows that, too. Also, during racing season, he knows whether you bet, and whether you won or lost. 
He is always at the station and always at the racetrack. And if you don't belong in Baltimore he is aware of it the instant he sets eyes upon you. Because he knows every man, woman, child, and dog in Baltimore. And they all know him. If you are a Baltimorean you are already aware that I refer to the sapient McNeil. Policeman at the Union Station. McNeil and Cardinal Gibbons are, I take it, the two preeminent figures of the city. Their duties, I admit, are not alike. But each performs his duties with discretion, with devotion, with distinction. The latter has already celebrated the 30th anniversary of his nomination as Cardinal, but the former is well on the way toward his 40th anniversary as officer at the Union Station. McNeil is an artist. He loves his work. And when his day off comes and he puts on citizen's clothing and goes out for a good time, where do you suppose he goes? Why down to the station, of course, to talk things over with the man who is relieving him. Chapter B-I-D-O-U-G-H-O-R-G-A in manner and the carols if I am to be honest about the South, and about myself and I propose to be I must admit that, though I approached the fabled land in a most friendly spirit, I had nevertheless become a little tired of the Southern family tree, the Southern ancestral hall, and the old Southern Negro servant of stage and story, and just a little skeptical about them, almost unconsciously, at first, I had begun to wonder whether, instead of being things of actuality, they were not, rather, a mere set of romantic trademarks, so to speak, symbols signifying the South as the butler with side whiskers signifies English comedy, as her visit to his rooms, in the third act, signifies English drama, or as double doorways in a paneled set signify French farce. Furthermore, it had occurred to me that of persons of Southern accent, or merely Southern extraction, whom I had encountered in the North, a strangely high percentage were not only of fine old Southern family, but of peculiarly tenacious purpose in respect to having the matter understood. I cannot pretend to say when the professional Southerner, as we know him in New York, began to operate, nor shall I attempt to place the literary blame for his existence as Mark Twain attempted to place upon Sir Walter Scott the blame for Southern chivalry, and almost for the Civil War itself. Let me merely say, then, that I should not be surprised to learn that Colonel Carter of Cartersville, that lovable old fraud who did not mean to be a fraud at all, but whose naivete passed the bounds of human credulity was not far removed from the bottom of the matter. In the tenor of these sentiments my companion shared though I should add that he complained bitterly about agreeing with me, saying that with hats alike, and overcoats alike, and trunks alike, and suitcases alike, we already resembled two members of a minstrel troupe and that now since we were beginning to think alike, through traveling so much together, our friends would not be able to tell us apart when we got home again in spite of this he admitted to the same suspicion of the South as I expressed. Wherefore we entered the region like a pair of agnostics entering the great beyond, skeptical, but ready to be shown. It was with the generous purpose of showing us that a Baltimore friend of ours called for us one day with his motor car and was presently wafting us over the good oiled roads of Maryland through sweet, rolling country, which seemed to have been made to be ridden over upon horseback. It was autumn, but though the chill of northern autumn was in the air, the coloring was not so high and key as in New York or New England, the foliage being less brilliant, but rich with subtle harmonies of brown and green, blending softly together as in a faded tapestry, and giving the landscape an expression of brooding tenderness. After passing through Illicop City, an old, shambling town quite out of character with its new sounding name, which has such a western ring to it, 
we traversed for several miles the old Frederick Turnpike formerly a national highway between east and west swooping up and down over a series of little hills and vales, and at length turned off into a private road winding through a venerable forest, which was like an old Gothic cathedral with its pavement of brown leaves and its tree trunk columns, tall, gray, and slender. When we had progressed for perhaps a mile, we emerged upon a slight eminence commanding a broad view of meadow and of woodland, and in turn commanded by a great house. The house was of buff-colored brick. It was low and very long, with wings extending from its central structure like beautiful arms flung wide in welcome, and at the end of each a building like an ornament balanced in an outstretched hand, the graceful central portico, rising by several easy steps from the driveway level, the long line of cornice the window sashes, the delicate wooden railing surmounting the roof, the charming little tower which so gracefully held its place above the geometrical center of the house, the bell tower crowning one wing at its extremity all these were white, no combination of colors can be lovelier, in such a house, than yellow buff and white, provided they be brightened by some notes of green, and these notes were not lacking, for several aged elms, occupying symmetrical positions with regard to the house, seemed to gaze down upon it with the adoration of a group of mothers, aunts, and grandmothers, as they held their soft draperies protectively above it, the green of the low terrace called a hot hot, supposedly with reference to the mirth-provoking possibilities of an accidental step over the edge did not reach the base of the buff walls, but was lost in a fringe of clustering shrubbery, from which patches of lustrous English ivy clambered upward over the brick, to a lay strong, mischievous fingers upon the blinds of certain second-story windows. The blinds were of course green, green blinds being as necessary to an American window as eyelashes to an eye. Immediately before the portico and centering upon it the drive swung in a spacious circle, from which there broke, at a point directly opposite the portico, an avenue, straight and long as a rifle range, and lovely as the loveliest of New England village greens, down the middle of this Broadway between grass borders each as wide as a great boulevard, and double rows of patriarchal trees, ran a road which, in the old days, continued straight to Annapolis, thirty or more miles away, where was the town house of the builder of this manor, as it stands today the avenue was less than half a mile long, but whatever its length, and whether one looked down it from the house, or up the gentle grade from the far end, to where the converging lines of grass and foliage and sky melt into the house, it has about it something of unreality, something of enchantment, something of that quality one finds in the rhapsodic landscapes of those poet painters who dream of distant shimmering palaces and supernal vistas peopled by fauns and nymphs dancing amid the trunks of giant trees whose luxuriant dark tops are contoured like the cumulus white clouds floating above them. There is nothing, baronial, nothing arrogant, about Dorgan Manor, for though the house is noble, its nobility, consisting in spaciousness, simplicity, and grace combined with age, fits well into a lot, it seems to me, should be the architectural ideals of a republic, no house could be freer of an essential embellishment, in detail it is plain almost to severity, yet the full impression that it gives, far from being austere, is a friendliness and hospitality, an approachable sort of house, a home-like house, it is perhaps less imposing than some other mansions, coeval with it, in Virginia, in Annapolis, and in Charleston, and yet it is as impressive, in its own way, as Warwick Castle, or Hearst Monsieur, or Locks, or Shannon, or Shannonsieu, or Heidelberg not that it is so vast, that it has glowering battlements, or that it stuns the eye, 
but for precisely opposite reasons, because it is a consummate expression of Republican cultivation, of a fine old American home, and of the fine old American gentleman who built it, and whose descendants inhabit it today, Charles Carroll of Carrollton, last to survive of those who signed the Declaration of Independence, the first Charles Carroll, known in the family as the settler, came from Ireland in 1688, and became a great landowner in Maryland. He was a highly educated gentleman and a Roman Catholic, as had also been his descendants. He acted as agent for Lord Baltimore, his son, Charles Carroll of Annapolis, or Breakneck Carroll, so-called because he was killed by a fall from the steps of his house, built the Carroll Mansion at Annapolis, now the property of the Redemptionist Order. The third and most famous member of the family was Charles Carroll of Carrollton, the signer, builder of the manor house at Dorgan which, by the way, derives its name from a combination of the old Irish words do, meaning house, or court, and Oregon, meaning of the king, the whole being pronounced, as with a slight brogue, do reckon, the accent falling on the middle syllable this Charles Carroll, the signer, most famous of his line, was Breakneck's only son. When eight years old he was sent to France to be educated by the Jesuits. He spent six years at St. Armour, one at Rheims, two at the College of Louis le Grand, one at Borges, where he studied civil law, and after some further time in college in Paris went to London, entered the Middle Temple and there worked at the common law until his return to Maryland in 1765. Although Maryland was founded by the Roman Catholic Baron Baltimore on a basis of religious toleration, the Church of England had later come to be the established church in the British colonies in America, and Roman Catholics were unjustly used, being disfranchised, taxed for the support of the English Church, and denied the right to establish schools or churches of their own, to celebrate the Mass, or to bear arms the bearing of arms having been, at that time the insignia of social position and general breeding, finding this situation well nigh intolerable. Carol of Carrollton, already a man of great wealth joined with his cousin, Father John Carroll, who later became first Archbishop of Baltimore for many years the only Roman Catholic diocese in the United States, embracing all states and territories, in an appeal to the King of France for a grant of land in what is now Arkansas, but was then a part of Louisiana, this land to be used as a refuge for Roman Catholics and Jesuits, whom the Carrolls proposed to a league thither precisely as Cecilia's Calvert, Lord Baltimore had led them to Maryland to escape persecution. The Roman Catholics were not, however, by this time the only American colonists who felt themselves abused, the whole country was chafing, and the seeds of revolution were beginning to show their red sprouts. It might have been expected that Mr. Carroll, being the richest man in the country, would hesitate at rebellion, but he did not, and like some of our present-day citizens of foreign extraction, and in circumstances involving not merely sentiment, but property and perhaps life. He showed no tendency to split his Americanism, but boldly threw his noble old cop hat into the ring, nor did he require Roosevelt to make his duty clear to him. In 1775 Mr. Carroll was a delegate to the Revolutionary Convention of Maryland. In 1776 he went with three other commissioners Benjamin Franklin, Samuel Chase, and Father John Carroll to try to induce the Canadian colonies to join in the revolt and soon after his return from this unsuccessful journey he signed the Declaration of Independence. Of the circumstances of the signing the late Robert C. Winthrop of Boston gave the following description, Will you sign? said Hancock to Charles Carroll. Most willingly, was the reply. There goes two millions with the dash of a pen, 
says one of those standing by, while another remarks, Oh, Carol, you will get off. There are so many Charles Carols. And then we may see him stepping back to the desk and putting that edition of Carol to his name, which will designate him forever, and be a prouder title of nobility than those in the peerage of Great Britain, which were afterward adorned by his accomplished and fascinating granddaughters. Some doubt has been cast upon this tale by the fact that papers in possession of the Carroll family prove that Mr. Carroll was wont to sign as of Carroll long before the declaration. Further, it is recorded that John H. Pilatrobe, Mr. Carroll's contemporaneous biographer, never heard the story from the subject of his writings. Nevertheless, I believe that it is true, for it seems to me likely that though Mr. Carroll used the subscription of Carroll in conducting his affairs at home, where there was chance for confusion between his son Charles, his cousin Charles, and himself. He might well have been inclined to omit it from a public document, as to the signers of which there could be no confusion. Further, the fact that he never told the story to a literal does not invalidate it, for as every man and every man's wife knows, men do not remember to tell everything to their wives, and it is still less likely that they tell everything to their biographers. Further still, Mr. Winthrop visited Mr. Carroll just before the latter's death, and as he certainly did not invent the story it seems probable that he got it from the signer himself. Last, I like the story and intend to believe it anyway which, it occurs to me, is the best reason of all, and the one most resembling my reason for being more or less Episcopalian and Republican. Latrobe tells us that Mr. Carroll was, in his old age, a small, attenuated old man, with a prominent nose and somewhat receding chin, and small eyes that sparkled when he was interested in conversation. His head was small and his hair white, rather long and silky, while his face and forehead were seamed with wrinkles, from the same source, and others. We glean the information that he was a charming and courteous gentleman, that he practiced early rising and early retiring, was regular at meals, and at morning and evening prayer in the chapel, that he took cold baths and rode horseback and that for several hours each day he read the Greek, Latin, English, or French classics. At the age of 83 he rode a horse in a procession in Baltimore, carrying in one hand a copy of the Declaration of Independence, and six years later, when by that strange freak of chance ex-presidents Adams and Jefferson died simultaneously on July 4th, leaving Mr. Carroll the last surviving signer of the Declaration, he took part in a memorial parade and service in their memory. In 1826, at the age of 89, he was elected a director of the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad Company, and at the age of 90 he laid the foundation stone marking the commencement of that railroad the first important one in the United States. We are told that at this time Mr. Carroll was erect in carriage and that he could see and hear as well as most men. In 1832, having lived to a within five years of a full century, having been active in the Revolution, Having seen the War of 1812, he died less than 30 years before the outbreak of the Civil War, and was buried in the chapel of the Manor House. This chapel, the like of which does not, so far as I know, exist in any other American house, is the burial place of a number of the Carols. It is used today, regular Sunday services being held for the people of the neighborhood. An alcove to the south of the chancel contains seats for members of the family and has access to the main portion of the house by a passageway which passes the bedroom known as the Cardinal's Room, a large chamber furnished with massive old pieces of mahogany and decorated in red. This room has been occupied by Lafayette, by John Carroll, 
cousin of, the signer, and first Archbishop of Baltimore, and by Cardinal Gibbons, it is on the ground floor and its windows command the series of terraces, with their plantings of old box, which slope away to gardens more than a century old, viewed in one light Dorgan manner as a monument, in another it is a treasure house of ancient portraits and furniture and silver, but above all it is a home, the beautifully proportioned dining room, the wide hall which passes through the house from the front portico to another overlooking the terraces and gardens at the back, the old shadowy library with its tree calf bindings, the sunny breakfast room, the spacious bedchambers with their four posters and their cheerful chintzes, the big bright shiny pantries and kitchens, all had that pleasant, easy air which comes of being lived in and which is never attained in a show place, which is nearly a show place, and nothing more. No dining table at which great personages have dined in the past has the charm of one the use of which has been steadily continued, no old chair but is better for being sat in, no ancient Sheffield tea service but gains immeasurably in charm from being used for tea. Today, no old Venetian mirror but what is lovelier for reflecting the beauties of the present as it reflected those of the past, no little old-time crib but what is better for a modern baby in it, it is pleasant, therefore, to report that, like all other things the house contains, the crib at Dorgan Manor was being used when we were there, for in it rested the baby son of the house, by name Charles, and of his line the ninth, further, it may be observed that from his youthful parents, Mr. and Mrs. Charles Bancroft Carroll, present master and mistress of the place, Master Charles seemed to have inherited certain amiable traits, indeed, in some respects, he outdoes his parents, for example, where the father and mother were cordial, the son should ruminatively upon his fingers and fastened upon my companion a gaze not merely interested, but expressive of enraptured astonishment, likewise, though his parents received us kindly, they did not crow and gurgle with delight, and though, on our departure, they said that we might come again. They neither waved their hands nor yet blew bubbles, though the house has been done over four times, and though the paneling was torn out of one room to make way for wallpaper when wallpaper came into style, everything has now been restored, and the place stands today to all intents and purposes exactly as it was, that so few changes were ever made in it, that it weathered successfully, with its contents, the disastrous period of East Lake furniture and the American mansard roof is a great credit to the Carroll family, and it is delightful to see such a house in the possession of those who can love it as it deserves to be loved, and preserve it as it deserves to be preserved. Mr. Charles Bancroft Carroll, who was a graduate of Annapolis and a grandson of the late Governor John Lee Carroll of Maryland, now farms some 2,400 acres of the five or 6,000 which surround the manor house. He raises blood cattle and horses, and, though he rides with the Elkridge Hunt, also keeps his own pack and is starting the Howard County Hounds, an organization that will hunt the country around the manor, which is full of foxes, of the innumerable family portraits contained in the house not a few are valuable and almost all are pleasing, when I remarked upon the high average of good looks among his progenitors, Mr. Carroll smiled in agreement, saying, yes, I'm proud of these pictures of my ancestors, most people's ancestors seem to have looked like the Dickens, among these noteworthy family portraits I recollect one of, the signer, as a boy, standing on the shore and watching a ship sail out to sea, one of the three beautiful Caton sisters, his granddaughters, who lived at Brooklynwood, in the Green Spring Valley, now the home of Mr. Isaac Emerson, one of Charles Carroll of Homewood, son of, the signer, and one of Governor John Lee Carroll, who was born at Homewood, 
the Caton sisters and Charles Carroll of home would supply to the Carroll family archives that picturesqueness which the history of every old family should possess, the former contributing beauty, the latter dash and extravagance, those qualities so annoying in a living relative, but so delightfully suggestive in an ancestor long defunct, if anything more be needed to round out the composition. It is furnished by the ghosts of Dorgan Manor, an old housekeeper with jingling keys, and an invisible coach, the wheels of which are heard upon the driveway before the death of any member of the family. Of the Caton sisters there were four, but because one of them, Mrs. Metafish, stayed at home and made the life of her grandfather happy, we do not hear so much of her as of the other three, who were internationally famous for their pulchritude, and were known in England as the three American graces. All three married British peers, one becoming Marchioness of Wellesley, another Duchess of Leeds, while the third became the wife of Lord Stafford, one of the noblemen embalmed in verse by Fitz Green Halleck, Lord Stafford mines for coal and salt, the Duke of Norfolk deals in malt, the Douglas in red herrings, as for Charles Carroll of Homewood, he was handsome, charming, and athletic, and, as indicated in letters written to him by his father, caused that old gentleman a good deal of anxiety. It is said that at one time perhaps during some period of estrangement from his wealthy parent he acted as a fencing master in Baltimore. At the age of 25 he settled down or let us hope he did for he married Harriet Chu, whose sister, Peggy, Mrs. John Eager Howard of Baltimore, was a celebrated belle, and of whose own charm we may judge by the fact that General Washington asked her to remain in the room while he sat to Gilbert Stuart declaring that her presence there would cause his countenance to wear its most agreeable expression. The famous portrait painted under these felicitous conditions hung in the White House when, in 1814, the British marched on Washington, but when they took the city and burned the White House, the portrait did not perish with it, for history records that Dolly Madison carried it to safety, and along with it the original draft of the Declaration of Independence. Charles Carroll of Homewood died before his father, the signer. But the house, Homewood, which the latter built for his son and daughter-in-law in 1809, stands today near the Baltimore city limits, at the side of Charles Street Boulevard, amid pleasant modern houses, many of which are of a design not out of harmony with the old mansion, though not comparable in size with the manor house at Dorgan, Homewood.